This is a Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu slash library. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the library. Thanks for coming out. Uh, my name is Troy Swanson. I'm the library department chair. And uh, this is our third lecture third, yeah. in our uh, series from the democracy commitment that we posted here in the library. Um, it's been good. We're thinking about different angles on democracy and participation, and today is going to take us down a new exciting path, so I'm looking forward to this, uh, feminism and democracy. And I'm assuming part of it will be defining what those words mean compared to how we <laughs> always use them. So um, with that, let me introduce our speaker. Uh, Tamara Coleman-Hill teaches in English. She teaches communications and she teaches literature here at Moraine. Um, she's also the coordinator of the Democracy Commitment. So this program is a lot of her work, and it always means, um, you know, good when the program program planner gets up and is part of her own programming. So it's uh, it's a nice treat today. So with that, round of applause and welcome, welcome, Tammy. Okay, can can you all hear me? This is working. Okay, I don't have to look. Let's see. I think I can talk like this, and it's still all right. Good. <laughs> Um, thank you all for coming. Um, I'm really excited to be um, here today, um, um, first and foremost in honor of Women's History Month and thinking about the contributions of women in our history in this country and also in other countries as well, but also thinking about the relationship or the connection, which I think is a very obvious and clear connection, between feminism and democracy. Um, so as uh, Troy stated, I'm, I'm going to talk a, a bit about what feminism means, and then also about what democracy means and the relationship between the two. Um, while I was thinking about how to do this, um, given that a lot of my coursework in graduate school and undergraduate school was focused on um, literature from a feminist perspective, I have a lot of theoretical stuff in my head and, and ideas and thinking when I think about feminism, but I, I thought I didn't want to make this too heavy in, in terms of the theory and so that everybody's trying to figure out what those words mean, what those concepts are. Um, so I decided to start with a, a very personal um, kind of way to think about feminism. Um, over the last couple of years, I've been working on a collection of essays, um, which at some point will be a book that will be published um, on marriage, motherhood, feminism, and identity. And there's one particular essay that I think works really well within this context because it helps us to understand, at least from my own personal perspective, what feminism is, what feminism isn't, and how that sort of, um, um, it, or at least in my experience, sort of shaped my life. So I'm going to start off with my own personal experience, with my story, that I title Why I Am a Feminist, which is really in many ways, as, as one of my um, friends who helped me edit this essay called A Love Letter to My Father, because a big part of um, who I am is because of my father. And um, I attribute um, my sort of subscribing to feminist ideals to him. So I'll start with my story. A few years ago, my father and I were having a conversation, a debate really, and he said to me in his usual matter-of-fact kind of way, you're not a feminist anymore, Tammy. You're a wife and a mother. At that moment, I was put off by his comment, typical of the end of a conversation with my father. But as I have reflected upon it over the last few years, that statement has provided a point for me to challenge my ideas, my beliefs, particularly those on feminism, marriage, and motherhood. It has altered my understanding of feminism. Since then, my definition of a feminist has been much more complicated. 
My father has always had a way of getting under my skin. I've never been one to mince words or recoil in the face of a challenging argument. English has always been my first language, and I've always been able to use it to my advantage. Ever since I was a little girl, language came easy for me. I wasn't, it wasn't just the language itself. It was a keen understanding of the ways in which language and, the, and words impact our lives, our experiences, and our relationships. It is the ultimate form of expression. It allows us to manifest in the real world feelings and ideas that exist in a seemingly separate, sometimes lonely place. Language is a malleable, creative force that can shape us, write us into history, and tell our stories. Words became a comforting resource for me after taking my first composition course at Pasadena City College. I remember Dr. Wilson's class like it was yesterday. He introduced me to James Baldwin, Brent Staples, Angela Davis, and Shirley Chisholm. Before this course, no one had ever told me a black woman had run for president. And all of this new information was coming from a white man, a white man with an afro. Before taking this class, I didn't really understand women's rights. I didn't really understand politics. I didn't understand the nuances of the civil rights movement. Of course, I knew about Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., but everybody knows about that. Who knew that there were so many black women at the forefront of the movement that largely went ignored? Who knew that the Latinos I grew up around in Southern California struggled with race issues? What does it mean to be Chicano? And how is that different from Latino? Aren't they all really Hispanic or Mexican? And gay rights? What? There was a movement? I grew up with a gay brother, so for me, gays always had rights. Tell me more about Stonewall. My world was opened up to this space, this space that existed for those who were willing to put themselves out there, to put themselves out there for a cause. They had a reason. They were on a mission. I was on a mission. I was learning about me. My identity was being formed. I was being shaped into a person, into a feminist. The essay Black Men in Public Spaces taught me that words could be used as a way to question self, self in a world of, ever, of constant and ever-existing antagonist. Brent Staples was a black man who was a problem, a problem to the world around him. So was Baldwin. He was black, gay, ugly, and not so sure about God. I, too, was a problem. I was a young woman who wanted more from life and from others. As a first-generation college student, I wanted a world that was foreign to me. I wanted an education, independence, and power. Dr. Wilson introduced me to all of this. I remember my fourth-grade teacher's comment on my report card. He wrote, Tammy is refined. I didn't quite understand this until years later. Several years after high school, I ran into the father of a close friend of mine at a restaurant where I waited tables to put myself through college. After reacquainting ourselves and enjoying fond memories, Mr. Tolton said to me, you know, you've always been different from the other girls. They were all so silly, and you were always so focused and mature. Mature? Focused? I never really thought of myself as focused. All of the other girls had gone off to schools like Oberlin, University of Southern California, and UCLA. They graduated in four years, and I had just transferred to a state school from a succession of community colleges. None of this seemed to matter, though. My credentials didn't define who I was. I had emerged into this confident, articulate young woman who was able to converse with ease, engage with anyone on any subject, and smile at the end of it at just the right time, revealing a beauty and grace that told the world that I was in control. And I was, but not with my father. My father has always made me uneasy. Words that flow so smoothly with others are tentative and clumsy with my dad. I find myself struggling to make meaning. I change my meaning. I qualify my meaning. I deny my meaning when I'm with my father. When my father told me I was no longer a feminist because I was a wife and mother, I recoiled. 
I went back to being that little girl in that separate and lonely place with a deep urge to manifest those feelings into language, but I couldn't. And I haven't really been able to since then. I'm not sure if marriage and motherhood are compatible with feminism. And if they are not, then what am I? Am I a bad wife and mother or just a bad feminist? Maybe I'm neither. Feminism to me is a word, a part of the language of our culture. But like all words, feminism is merely an expression of our feelings. Feminism isn't a title that you can put on and take off. Feminism is a feeling is the feeling you get when you know that thing between your legs doesn't define you. Feminism is a deep-rooted understanding that you're more than your outward appearance. Feminism is a full expression of who you are beyond the roles and the labels. Feminism comes from within. It's not a title that you can claim or attach to someone else. Feminism is personal. Feminism is a journey of the soul. A feminist is not male or female. A feminist is a woman who can walk in a boardroom full of men and command a presence at the table. And a feminist is a man who is willing to relinquish his privilege long enough to welcome her and her insight. A feminist is not bound by defined gender roles and expectations. A feminist is my fourth grade teacher, Mr. Angelus. He opened the eyes of a nine-year-old girl to the endless possibilities waiting out there by sharing his stories of growing up in Hawaii and expecting nothing but the best from her. A feminist is Mr. Tolchin. Along with opening my eyes to the parts of me that I could not see, he raised a feminist daughter who is a successful immigration attorney and an activist. And then there's Dr. Wilson. Dr. Wilson broke the silence. Dr. Wilson gave me words. He gave me language. He gave me power. A feminist is you, Daddy. You taught me to change my tire so I wouldn't need to flag down a man. You called me Tommy when you needed help because you understand the androgyny that exists in each of us. You indulged my verbal challenges because you knew I could go toe-to-toe and should go toe-to-toe with the intellectual capacity of any man. And most importantly, before I became a wife and mother, you once said to me, you will get married, but you won't stay married. You said this because you know the institution of marriage is limited. It's limited and constrained within the context of outdated and antiquated ideas, ideals. You said this because you knew I was and am still bigger than those ideals. You said this because you saw feminism in me. You were projecting, Daddy. What you saw in me was also in you. You were wrong, Daddy. I am a feminist, and so are you. So that's my, thank you, Troy. <laughs> that's my um, sort of personal story, my personal experience, my personal understanding of feminism. Um, And each time I go back to that piece, I've gone back to edit it, I've read it in other public spaces and talked to other people about um, the piece. Um, I'm always struck, even though I'm the writer, I'm always struck by the fact that the influences that I speak about are not women. And oftentimes when we think of feminism, I think it's sort of a, a misunderstanding of feminism. We attribute it to ideas that are just about women or ideals that only women can hold. When, in fact, there were many men in my life that um, are a big part of why I am a feminist and really promoted independence, really promoted power, really promoted some of these ideals that um, we talk about in feminist theory um, in my own personal life. So I I think to start, I want to really um, get you to think about that and really consider that concept that a feminist is not a woman. A feminist is not any particular person, doesn't have a a specific look or way of thinking or um, a way in which that person is raised. A a feminist is really much broader and bigger than that. Um, And ultimately, feminism is really about all of us. It's not just about women. And that's what I'd like to look at in the um, 
following slides that I've prepared for today. Um, this is one very popular definition of feminism that's often used on bumper stickers or in you know, very radical kind of political rallies to get people riled up. Um, the idea that feminism is the radical notion that women are people. Um, for those of us here today, and this was actually coined in 1986, which might seem old to you, it's really not in, in a historical perspective, it's not that long ago. Um, but for those of us here today, and, and half the uh, audience is a group of women who are here at a, at a college, um, it wasn't very long ago when women couldn't attend college. So this idea that this sort of what was radical at the time notion that women are people, you might go, of course women are people, but historically women have not necessarily been thought of as people. But as really, um, a, 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 women have been thought of historically as playing particular roles in society, a wife, a mother, or, or being defined by biological parts, right? Women aren't people, women are vaginas. We have babies, right? We provide pleasure for men. These are, are, are very popular ideas, which I think on some level still exist in our society today. So I think this is a really powerful definition um, for us to think about the humanity of women and how in many ways when society oppresses women, we take away that humanity. Um, so what is feminism? Well, feminism is broad, right? As I stated in my own story, a feminism is a woman, a feminism is a man, a feminism is this, is that, all kinds of things, right? Um, but I think this is a good definition to broadly think about all forms, all schools of feminism. Um, it's the basic idea, uh, the basic idea of feminism revolves around the principle that just because human bodies are de designed to perform certain procreative tasks or functions, um, biological elements need not dictate intellectual and social functions, capabilities, and rights. So yes, we know there are biological differences between men and women. Yes, we know women have mammary glands and, and we have the ability to nurse our children. Yes, we know men can't do that in that way. However, to move beyond that, feminism is not questioning that. Feminism is questioning these other sorts of capacities that women have in a larger society. Social functions, intellectual capacities, these are the things that feminism um, is attempting to question and look at. Um, there are other definitions of feminism. In fact, there are tons of definitions of feminism because many women and men as well, but in particular women have sort of come to the table to talk about ways in which, what, ways in which they've defined feminism based on their own experiences. Um, the first definition is, is by Bell Hooks, an African-American feminist woman. Um, she says feminism is a movement to end sexism, um, sexist exploitation, and oppression. Um, I like this definition because this definition goes beyond women. It's talking about oppression in general. Um, women of color, particularly women feminists of color, have tended to develop definitions that also include race. Um, while in the sort of mainstream white women's feminist movement, Obviously, the concern for white women is their gender. Um, their concern is not so much race. Black women have come to the table and said, hey, okay, yes, there are gender issues, but as an African-American woman, as a Latino woman, as an Asian woman, there are other issues that I'm also sort of confronting and trying to deal with. So Bell Hooks attempts to give us a broader definition that doesn't just look at, um, that's not just to look at gender, but also look at how race and gender sort of intersect. Um, and there are even more complicated definitions that also get into race, gender, sexual orientation, nationality, and all these sorts of things because all of these things complicate our lives and, and who we are. Um, Susan Faludi's definition, who's a, a famous, uh, uh, at least within the world of, of, of women's studies, um, feminist theorist, she says, its agenda is basic. It asks that women not be forced to choose between public justice and private happiness. 
It asks that women be free to define themselves instead of having their identity defined for them time and time again by their culture and by their men. So the idea that women get to decide who they are, what their role is, what their place in society is really important to uh, many feminist theorists. And I think the first part of the definition is also important, not being forced to choose between these the sort of uh, public spheres of the world, right? Um, our jobs, our careers, our education, and private matters within the domestic spheres, but saying um, those two don't have to be separate, right? I can still do things like uh, pursue higher education and also fulfill uh, uh, a career path that I might desire, but also be a good mother. And, and if I so choose, you know, if I so choose to be a mother and, and be a wife, if I so choose to be a wife, and those things shouldn't necessarily bump up against each other, although they oftentimes do. And then the last definition I think is the best, as far as I'm concerned, the best definition to help us really understand um, the goal of feminism, right? So at bottom, feminism is a mode of analysis, an approach to life and politics, a way of asking questions and searching for answers. So when, we, when I say that a feminist is not this or that or this woman or that person, I mean, uh, feminism is really about us asking questions. It's a lens through which we try to understand the world and ask why women aren't getting equal pay and ask why women don't have the right to, or, or at, at least some point in history, women didn't have the right to make decisions about their own bodies or whether or not they wanted to bear children or get married or stay married or whether, whatever these questions are. That's what it's about. It's to help us try to understand what is happening in our society and to be able to ask questions. So at its root, feminism is really an academic term. Um, most of the feminists, at least um, in, in, our, uh, in the women's lit class that I'm teaching right now, we looked at early feminist authors. And one of the things that we talked about is the idea that many early feminists didn't call themselves feminists at all because the term didn't exist. The term sort of came about after uh, people within the academic world, women mostly started to question these ideas and to look back historically and to think about um, the women who work for women's rights, uh, uh, the right to vote, and these types of larger political issues, and what, did, what does that mean? And so using a term like feminism, which is really a theoretical term, is useful in trying to understand history, trying to understand um, uh, sort of our location um, within the larger society. So I'm going to shift for a second and then bring these two together. So what is democracy, right? I titled this talk, um, um, This is a Democracy, What Does Feminism Have to Do With It? Because I think oftentimes we think about feminism as this kind of niche group of sort of radical wild women who are not in the mainstream of society and they're doing something wild, right? And usually something that's problematic. As if feminism is completely separate from these larger ideas of the American society and an American democracy. And, and my, my goal here is to show that it's not separate, that in fact it's necessary. Um, theories and ideas and concepts like feminism are necessary in order for democracy to work. Um, so it, it, I, I pulled this, this sort of four-pronged or four-part um, understanding of democracy from, a, um, from Stanford University, from one of the professors there. But um, democracy is a political system for choosing and replacing the government through free and fair elections. So I, I think that's clear and we understand that. Um, democracy is the active participa participation of the people as citizens in um, politics and in civic life, right? Um, democracy is the protection of human rights of all citizens. Um, and as a rule of law, it, it, a rule of law in which the laws and, and procedures apply equally to all citizens. So if this is a democracy, as we're looking at it here, um, none of those bullet points exclude anyone based on gender. 
nor does it exclude anyone based on sexual orientation or any other thing, disability, age, or any of the other things that oftentimes people are discriminated. Um, we use issues in which we base our discrimination. So what does that mean to us in terms of feminism? Well, what I've attempted to do is look at each of these points. I think the first one is obvious, the idea of free and fair elections, although um, if women aren't given the right to vote, then these elections technically aren't free or fair. Um, so we'll move on to the second one. If democracy is the act of participation of the people as citizens in politics and civic life, what does that have to do with feminism? Well, today we are participating in civic life, right? Um, and we, we see that in our, our actual political system. We also see that here at our college. The president of our college is an African-American woman. Three of the vice presidents of our college are women. So today we see evidence of women participating in civic life. But that wasn't necessarily the case. And a big part of what feminism did is open doors and created space for women to be in these positions, whether they're presidents of colleges or presidents of the United States, which is something that we're looking at much more closely now in the foreseeable future. Um, so I wanted to point out a couple of historical um, sort of people who played an important role in um, kind of thinking about feminist ideals and pushing the envelope and creating space for women's participation in civic life. Uh, Mary Wollstonecraft in the 18th century, she's an um, English author, philosopher, sort of early feminist theorist who really promoted education for women, as well as Margaret Fuller in her work. She's an American writer, um, transcendentalist writer, who talks about education for women. Why is education important? Because education brings women out of the domestic spheres in which they were sort of contained and restrained in many ways and into public life, right? Now I know more about what's going on in the world. I understand these larger concepts. I can participate. I can ask questions. I can ask why I'm not being represented by my elected officials. I can, I can ask why these issues aren't on the table in terms of laws and legislations. That comes from education. And without that push through a feminist kind of perspective, we wouldn't have what we have today. Um, early feminists fought 70 years for women's right to vote and won in 1919, right? Again, we enjoy the privileges we have now because of that work done by early feminists. Um, democracy and human rights. So if democracy is the protection of, humans, uh, of, the, of human rights for all citizens, um, let's look back again historically. Sojourner Truth in 1852 in her speech, and, and she was an African-American woman who, who was a, a slave and also an illiterate woman, but was very eloquent in thinking about her space as a woman and also as an African-American. At that time, we didn't use the term African-American, but that's what we call it today. She asked, ain't I a woman? And she really questions um, the rights that white women enjoyed versus what she did not or was not able to enjoy based on really what was um, um, an infringement upon her human rights. And, and so she ultimately, in that speech, questions, ain't I also a woman? Shouldn't I be given some of those privileges and kind of comparing herself to white women? Elizabeth Cady Stanton, in her Declaration of Sentiments in 1848, she calls for America to really think about and look at the doctrines or the, the sort of documents that sort of govern our country, like the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, and think about ways that women have overtly been discriminated against and excluded from the rights that have been enjoyed by men. I want to look at just a couple of those because I think it's such an interesting piece. Um, what she does in the Declaration of Sentiments, she really takes the language from the Declaration of Independence, and she adds in women. To, 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 it was really a, a rhetorical strategy to show the ways in which women were very specifically excluded from the discussion in the de Declaration of Independence. After she, she does that, she sort of um, follows that same pattern. She has a list of these kinds of um, injustices that, w that women have faced. 
For example, she says, he has never permitted her to exercise her inalienable right to the elective franchise. So that's being a part of the um, political process and having the right to vote. He has compelled her to submit to laws in the formation of which she had no voice. So women have to follow laws that, that they had no part in forming. They had no say in. He has withheld from her rights which are given to the most ignorant and degraded men, both natives and foreigners. Um, he, having deprived her of this first right of a citizen, the elective franchise, thereby leaving her without representation in the halls of legislation, he has oppressed her on all sides. And then she goes on to look at very specific ways in which um, um, women have sort of been left out of the conversation. He has made her, if married in the eye of the law, civilly dead. He has taken from her all right and property, even to the wages she earns. He has made her morally an irresponsible being, as she can commit many crimes without impunity, provided they be done in the presence of her husband. He has framed the laws of divorce as to what shall be the proper causes in the case of separation, meaning women couldn't choose to get a divorce. Women couldn't choose to, if, if the man divorced her, women couldn't um, take their, the, the children. The children were automatically given to the man. So there are all kinds of problems in r relation to human rights that were um, in many ways overcome and won because of feminist ideas by people like Elizabeth Cady Stanton. Um, and then finally, democracy and equality. Um, as a rule, of, uh, a rule of law in which the laws and procedures apply equally to all citizens. There's evidence in our very recent history where um, laws didn't apply or don't apply equally to all citizens. One is the Equal Pay Act that supposedly in 1963 the, the act was um, uh, introduced, um, but yet there, we don't have equal pay for equal work between men and women. Um, the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which obviously includes race, but also includes sex and um, asking or, or demanding that we not um, discriminate on the basis of sex or sexual orientation or age or many of the other things that we've historically discriminated um, against. Roe v. Wade, although it's a very controversial issue, there are folks who have you know, differing uh, opinions on the right for women to choose. It certainly is a very important um, a piece of policy that has changed and provided a level of equality for women, and that was in 1973. Um, the Supreme Court declared sexual harassment sex discrimination in 1986. Again, not that long ago, but uh, up until 1986, a woman couldn't go to court and, and, and file a suit against an employer or a boss or a manager um, based on um, uh, sexual harassment. Yes, I am saying women, I'm talking about women, but all of these things also improve the lives of men. Men have brought sexual harassment cases to court because men also get sexually harassed. So that's important to understand. These aren't just issues related to women. Um, the Civil Rights Act is not just related to women. The Civil Rights Act is a big part of why we have some of the things we have today related to LGBT issues. The marriage equality, all of that stuff was really fought on the basis of feminist ideas that was asking for equality and ending of oppression for all people. So that's important to understand. Again, it's not just women, but it's all people. Equal pay. It benefits men and women both for women to have equal pay. Um, in many cases, women are the main providers of households. Um, we want women to be earning enough as well as men, not just men. So, so I think it's important for us to look a little bit broadly at these issues. Um, so why our democracy needs uh, feminism? Feminism is vital, as far as I'm concerned, to our democracy. Feminism asks us to look at people and not genitalia. It's not about what your function is. It's not about your ability to reproduce or not. It's about what you have to offer in, in much larger ways to society. Femi feminism questions our adherence to systems of power that prevent some citizens from enjoying full equality. And again, those systems of power are, are things that prevent many of us, 
on the basis of race, on the basis of gender, on the basis of sexual orientation. Um, the movement to really support um, transgendered people has really been embraced by the feminist movement. Um, I worked for four years in the reproductive rights movement, and a big part of that movement was opening the public's eyes to the, um, uh, the, the huge inequities that people who are transgender face. It's very complicated, and it's hard for or many of us to understand, but it is within the larger scope of feminism for us to embrace that and say, okay, these people deserve to be treated as humans as well. And so a lot of um, uh, political things that are happening, there's actually some work being done in prisons to make sure or to ensure the safety of transgendered people. Um, and some of you are probably thinking, what the heck I'm talking about? Well, if a man who is transitioning to a woman, a trans woman, is placed into a male prison, that's a problem. That's a dangerous situation for that particular individual. Whether you think people should be transgender or not is irrelevant. The fact is people are. And so how do we protect them? So there are actually laws um, and policies that many prisons and, and the, the prisons here in Illinois are really working on to ensure that when these people are in prison, and in most cases they're unjustly in prison, um, they're largely left out of the workspace. If people find out a person is trans transgender, they generally discriminate immediately and fire them from their jobs. So there, there are lots of injustices it, that feminism chooses as a larger strategy to end oppression to support. Um, feminism forces us to look at the relationship between race and gender, right? So it's not just gender. For me as an African-American woman, I've struggled with issues of uh, gender discrimination, but I've also struggled with issues of race discrimination, trying to understand those complexities. Feminism is asking us to deal with that and, and work through those things and understand how while our experiences are similar, there are differences in each of our experiences based on all of those different prongs or, or factors or ways in which we identify ourselves. So finally, I am arguing that without feminism, we don't have a democracy. If democracy is meant to provide equality for all citizens, and there is no system that looks at and questions the discrimination against differing uh, uh, types of people within our society, then it's not truly a democracy. Um, here's the final definition that I, I want us to look at, um, and then I'll open it up for um, questions. At its core, feminism is a multi-issue movement committed to extremely long-term goals. And this, I think, is really what feminism is about. It's not just putting up our hands and saying, I'm a feminist. It's certainly not about hating men. Um, it's actually about including everybody. But it really is about ending patriarchy, a system that privileges men overall, and in general, that privileges white men. It is about the achievement of economic, political, social equality for all women, and in fact, for all people. Um, and the creation of a world free from sexism, racism, homophobia, classism, ageism, ableism, violence, and environmental exploitation. At its core, that's what feminism is about. Um, it's important, really important, and I, I've been talking about this for many years with people on campus. Um, I said, we really have to do something for Women's History Month. I, you know, one of the things that I do, in, in particularly in my women's lit class, I ask at the very beginning, how many of you consider yourself feminists? And like half a person raises their hand and they barely want to do it. They're kind of doing this, and, but you don't want anybody to see them. And I said to myself, why? Why are people so um, against this concept? Or maybe it's just about the labeling. But I think it's because we don't understand what it's about. And I think there are many ways in which popular culture has co-opted the term feminism. Oftentimes we hear pop icons like Beyonce saying they're a feminist or, or Miley Cyrus or, or, or any of these people, which they have every right to claim that they're feminists. But when we really look at feminism, that's not feminism, what they're sort of portraying. Um, 
they have the freedom to be as, um, you know, sexually seductive as they wish. Again, that's not feminism, yet they do have the freedom to do that. So I think it's important for us to try to understand those concepts. With that, um, I want to open it up for questions. Um, I thank you all for, for listening, um, for indulging me for a moment. I don't often get to talk about feminism for a half hour. <laughs> Most people don't listen. <laughs> questions here, right? Yes. Yeah, the mic. Now you're... Uh can you hear me? I can hear okay. you. Now, you're familiar with the whole issue if uh, a man hits a woman, oh, that's a big deal, but women are free to hit men, it's okay, they're weak, or it, that kind of issue. Like, a man cannot hit a woman, but it's okay for a woman to hit a man. You're asking if I'm familiar with that type of thinking? Yes, are you familiar with it? I'm and familiar I, with that type of uh, thinking. What is yes. your opinion about these issues? About women hitting men? Well, about the uh, whole thing, how men make a big deal, that women are free to hit men, that kind of thing. Um, well... First of all, I think the issue that you're raising is an issue about thinking. There are no laws that say, you know, men can't hit women, but women can hit men. So, first of all, let's, let's get that straight. There's no public policy out there on that issue. Um, I have sons, and I have a daughter. I have my first two kids, and, I, and again, I try to explain things through personal stories because that's how I understand the world. Um, when I had my first son, when I was pregnant with my first son, in my mind, I knew it was going to be a girl. I don't know why, but I did. As a feminist, I was thinking to myself, what I want to teach my daughter about the world, what I'm going to give her, I'm going to be this amazing mother, and I find out it's a boy. And I said, I don't know what to teach him about the world. I have no idea what it means to be a boy, right? Of course, I have to figure it out. He's 11 now. Um, but one of the things that we talk about, I also have a, a five-year-old daughter. The boys play. They're rough because they're boys. Not all boys are rough, but my boys are rough. Um, they play. They fight. They, they tussle. They also play and fight and tussle with her, and she's actually sort of used to it now that she fights back with them. But one of the things that I had to do as a mother is figure out what do we want to teach her, right? Because in most cases, biologically, women are physically weaker. That's just in most cases. Yes, there are some men, you know, women. Yes. So what is it that we want to show her? And I, I said to myself, I want her to be able to sort of enjoy this play because I think it's okay that girls are a little rough too, but I also don't want her to be harmed. So I said to the boys, They'll say, Autumn hit me, so I'm going to hit her back. I tell them no. Why do I tell them no? Not because I think that women should just go around or girls should go around hitting boys. They are bigger than her. They're stronger than her. For the most part, they're always going to be bigger than her and stronger than her. Her little five-year-old little punch may not hurt them. Their hit back at her is going to hurt her. That's my issue with, with the thing that you're raising. It's not about fairness. You know, I think sometimes when we think about equality, we take it to this extreme level. Well, if you want equality, then I should be able to hit you. That's stupid. I'm sorry. That just doesn't make sense. Physically, there is a difference, and I think we have to not get caught up in these conversations about, you know, well, if you want equality, then everything's going to be equal. Well, everything's not equal because we're not the same, right? And so for me, that's where that issue sort of lies in that space. Well, and we have to be realistic about the biological factors as well, right? Is there a reason why a six-foot-tall, 300-pound man should hit me? Well, should I hit him? No. So I'm wrong in the beginning if I, you know, put my hands on him. But come on. That's, that's, that's an unfair fight. If you had two men, six-foot, 300-pound man and a kind of a, you know, whatever, five-foot-tall, 130-pound man, that's not really a fair fight either. And for me, that's where I sort of come in on that issue. It was a long way to <laughs> explain that, but other, other questions. Other questions. Sorry. 
That's it? Of all this? We just want to know about men and women hitting each other? Look. <laughs> now, I'm pretty sure you've expected this, but abortion. I'm pretty sure this comes as an issue. People are trying to shoot you down with the whole thing with abortion. So. Literally trying to shoot me down. Yeah. Yeah. So what's your question? Um, what's your opinion on it? <laughs> um, okay. And I'll. I'm not trying to shoot you down. No, 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 no. And I, I'm okay with it. And I actually did work for years supporting women's right to choose. My issue with abortion is that it's with a lot of these moral issues, right? Sometimes we talk about um, um, same-sex marriage as a moral issue as well. Um, to be quite frank, if you don't think that it's right to have an abortion, don't have one. However, when we start thinking about people's rights, it doesn't matter what I think. It's irrelevant whether I think people should or shouldn't. It should be legal or not. That's completely irrelevant. The issue is it is not my right to infringe on other people's right to live as they choose. And that's my issue with abortion. It's not the more, I don't get into people's morality. I think people make decisions about their own morality and their own spirituality, their own relationship to whatever higher power or not higher power they have. Um, and I think most feminists, I think sometimes it gets kind of um, tricky within feminist circles because there are different feminists. Feminists have different views. They all don't all have the same views on that issue. There might be feminists who actually have a problem with um, women's right to choose. That's the reality, right? Um, but for me, I'm, I'm not here to dictate people's lives. I'm here to make sure we all have the freedom to live as we choose in ways that aren't harming other people. Some would argue that abortion harms a fetus. I don't necessarily follow that line of um, thinking. Would I agree? It's not for me to agree with what somebody chooses to do. And furthermore, my issue with that, that logic is that most babies of color who are born and put into foster care never get adopted. So that's not an answer to the problem, right? I don't know that it's better. I don't know that moving from foster home to foster home and being in, in, in uh, maybe in abusive situations is better. Come on. I'm ready. <laughs> I'm not afraid of that. I, I think we should be having these conversations. There aren't conversations. We're, we're, we're in a college setting. We're um, bringing up important issues that affect our lives and our society, and we should be talking about these things. We should be raising those questions. I feel like the reason we're not asking questions is either we're shy or just nervous of how others look at us by talking about such an issue. Oh, absolutely. And I've been talking about issues that people are so against me for years that I'm not afraid to talk about anything, right? I've been called all kinds of names. So. Yes. Um, can you talk more about the uh, Fair Pay Act that you mentioned earlier and um, why do women still earn less per dollar than men? Um, that's a, a seemingly simple but very complicated issue. So the act was passed, I think it was 1964 when it was actually passed, but still, and you, you could see now, it's, I, I still see billboards up that talk about the difference in pay. So I, I believe the number is to every um, dollar that men earn, women earn 75 cents, right? So there's a discrepancy. The, the issue is with work, right? Um, historically, I mean, although things are changing now, um, in, in the 1960s, there were very few women in, in professional schools like law schools. Now women represent like 51% of students in law schools. That's a huge change in shift. It's probably the same also in medicine and in some of the other fields as well. 
But the issue is work. So historically, work that women tended to do or be able to get because of, you know, lack of education or discrimination has been domestic kinds of work, work that as a larger society we don't value. That, which I think is the larger problem, how we determine what is valuable, right? We think a CEO of a company should be paid several million dollars a year, but somehow a school teacher is not that valuable. I mean, so that's something that society as a whole needs to really reconsider and think about. But women tended to, um, and still do on some level, um, locate themselves in jobs like school teachers or nurses or, um, you know, domestic care workers or, or in the past, secretaries, although we don't even need secretaries in the way we used to anymore because just technology has changed. So clearly that pay is different because in our society we value other types of work more. But in other um, uh, professions, and actually on, on Thursday, we're going to be screening a video, an interview between the students of my women's lit class and the executive leadership team, some of the women leaders at the college. And one of the vice presidents raises the issue. She's a vice president here now. But when we talked about her experience and in, in moving up in the sort of the ladder, um, one of the things she said is even though she had, you know, good positions, a dean or, you know, whatever these positions are, oftentimes she was left out of the conversation. So the, the men would have kind of the, the good old boys club over here. They would be meeting and they would go to lunch or, you know, they would play golf together and they would have conversations about raises, about pay that women were often left out of. So women aren't really um, offered the, uh, a place at the table to have the conversations. So I think part of it is not just overt discrimination. A big part of it is that women don't know what questions to ask because they're left out of that sort of male domain in which they're constantly having these conversations. So you're wondering why the guy in the office next to you, he keeps moving up, but wait a minute, I'm doing my job. Nobody asked me or I didn't hear about that. I didn't know there was a position open. Well, you weren't at the golf tournament and you weren't invited to the golf tournament either, right? Um, so these kinds of things sort of happen. On a legislative level, it's, it's much more obvious, right? You, you can't overtly say you're a woman. I'm, I'm going to only give you, you know, this amount per year, but if I'm hiring a man, so that doesn't happen. So it's, it's a hard thing to um, enforce because you don't know and it's not overt, um, but it's certainly a problem. So I think for me, in, in having this conversation with one of the vice presidents, I think the biggest thing is for women to be educated about these sort of separate spheres that exist and particularly in corporate world or, or in these sort of higher paying jobs, and women need to jump into those lunches. Oh, there's a golf tournament? I'm going. I don't play golf. I hate golf. I'm going to drive around in the car and have, you know, that little, uh, what's the little golf cart? And I'm going to hang out, and I'm going to see what's happening so I can be a part of that conversation. Um, that's kind of a, a back road around the, the legal piece because the legal piece is the hard uh, piece to um, enforce. Does that make sense? Yeah. I'm coming. What else do you think we can do as young adults to kind of show feminism to the world, to those that don't really know what it means? Um, Except like educating ourselves, mm -hmm. which is probably the most important. Mm -hmm. uh, education is certainly most important, and that's certainly what many of the early um, women who did not use the term feminist, but I consider them feminists, really talked about is education. Knowledge, right, is the key. Um, but but I, I also think that... Um, I mean, stereotypes, um, ideas about roles, 
they aren't just things that we just come up with. These are things that are rooted in culture. They're rooted in religion. So particularly for people who have certain um, uh, faith beliefs or religious systems where th there is a specific role in which men and women play, it's hard to get past that because that's your understanding of the world, right? That's your understanding of God. That's your understanding of, of all that exists is rooted in that. And I'm not here to question that and to tell people that they shouldn't follow those things, but I think that it's obvious based on First of all, the large amount of women that we see here today, um, the, the work in which um, women have accomplished um, in our larger society just over, you know, hundreds of years. Um, I think it's obvious that the voices of everyone within our society should be valued. And we really can't have a representative democracy with just men at the table, with just white men at the table, right? We need women at the table because there are concerns clearly that women have that may not come up in the conversation with just men because they don't know that those things exist. We need to have people of color at the table because there are concerns that people of color have that, um, um, the, uh, uh, you know, white elected officials may not know about. Um, I remember a couple years ago when um, President um, uh, Bush was still in office and um, I think it was actually during one of the uh, elections and there was a, a debate between the vice presidents. And um, there was a black woman, and I can't remember her name. She was the moderator, and she was asking questions to Dick Cheney, and the, Dick Cheney, a white man. And the question that she asked, she said, um, did you know, because they were talking about um, uh, funding that America sends to um, Africa for it to help eradicate HIV AIDS and that kind of thing, and she said to him, do you know that the largest number of um, uh, HIV cases and the growing, the largest growing population of, of people with HIV is among African-American women. Not African women, African-American women. And he stared at her and looked at her like she was speaking French. It's important for that voice of that woman to be, to raise these questions because Dick Cheney has no idea what she's talking about. Should he? Maybe he should, but that's not really his concern. So part of our work has to be in ensuring that people are represented. People of who, who um, LGBT, people who identify as you know, LGBT, should be at the table. Because if, if that's not your, um, um, where, the way you identify, maybe you don't know about those issues. But somebody has to be there to, to be able to raise those issues. So for that reason, I think it's important for us to keep that in mind, right? What does a representative democracy look like? And is it really representing us if everybody in that democracy in power look the same? No. Right? We still have the good old um, white male network in Congress. It's not just a problem that they're all old and w white. It's not just a problem that they're all white and male. It's a problem that they're too old, too. It's time for them to retire and for some young people to take over. <laughs> we need young views as well, not just views from 80-year-old men. I mean, that's just my perspective on what a representative democracy should look like, especially given the changing demographics of our country, right? large numbers of immigrants, large numbers of Latinos, large numbers of, of, of people who are now coming out and identifying with um, LGBT um, sorts of I identifiers. So how do we think about them? They're still citizens whether you agree or like them or not. Yes? So I have a question then that I think leads in um, with these comments. Um, and I, I'm, I agree. Um, I've always been drawn to the definition of feminism as a way of analysis and way of thinking. And um, especially in education, there's a lot of talk about um, the feminist classroom. Um, and as you've noted, taught by men or women or whomever. Um, could you talk a little bit more about then this idea, you know, if it, we don't need 
um, 80-year-old white guys running everything. Not only 80-year-old. We only can have some old, right? of them, but not but all. But how does that translate to the work world? Like most of us, you know, may not become senators. Um, we obviously all could vote since today's election day. Um, but how would you, if you're going to go on the job, what does a feminist workplace look like? So, you know, some ways that we as people on the job can use this thinking um, to change where we are right now. Yep. Um, I went to the um, Women's Studies Association conference a couple years ago in Atlanta, and I went to one of the sessions that talked about, there were professors there from, from different institutions, and they were talking about th that, what you're saying, the feminist classroom. And I was really interested in that, is what does that look like? What does it mean to not teach feminism, but to teach in a way that represents feminism, right? So it's, a, it's kind of a mode of, of, of teaching, pedagogy. Um, and one of the things that they talk about, and, and this is a, a specific issue, and I'll broaden it to other forms of work, but the woman who was speaking um, was an English teacher, a lit teacher. She does the things that I do. And so she shared some of the strategies that she uses. So the first thing to understand is, broadly speaking, when we think about the way in which males and females sort of work, operate, or kind of maintain power, they're different in a way. There are certain things that are valued in, in, in men and traits that are valued, right? Um, we sort of value men who are strong, men who are aggressive, men who, who speak up, right? We don't necessarily find that offensive, right? In women, sometimes those things are offensive. We don't like um, overpowering female bosses, right? We give them names like bitch, and you've heard that a lot. Oh, she's, she's just, she's not nice, right? We don't expect men to be nice. We expect women to be nice, right? So there's these sort of um, discrepancies in terms of the way in which we lead and the way in which we kind of exert our power. And so it's very difficult for women to lead, particularly in, in instances where even women discriminate against those traits because they don't have a clear understanding of what these concepts are. Um, but one of the things that she does in the classroom, she includes things that typically aren't included. And I don't know if these are things that are innate in male and female or not. I'm not a sociologist or anthropologist or any of that. But she makes the class a space that is welcoming to reflection. So it's not just about question and answer, right? When we think about science and math, sometimes we talk about that as being a, a very sort of lit literal way of thinking. And sometimes we even go so far to say this kind of male way of thinking, right? Um, and we talk about women as wanting to communicate more. There's more gray areas when you deal with women, right? It doesn't have to be right or wrong, right, in general. So she created this classroom where it wasn't just about having the right answer, but it was a space for reflection, for deeper thinking, for deeper understanding. She even went so far in her classroom to include meditation because meditation allows us to, one, let go of some of these kind of hard, narrow ways of thinking and allows us to explore a bit more. Um, so her classroom was structured in that way uh, um, a bit differently. Troy, can you ask the question again? <laughs> well, I was just trying to get us to take that next step to, like, in, on the jobs that we may have now or jobs that we may have in the future, how does working and living in, like, a feminist workplace might look, how we might interact, how we may make that happen? Well, thinking, feminists oftentimes talk about valuing different ways of knowing. Right, that's a huge concept in feminist theory. So in our in Western society now, we um, value science much over the humanities. Although I think things are shifting. What about life experience? Is that an important knowledge base? It is. Right. Um, women often value this more than men. Well, it doesn't matter what your experience is. What do the studies show? Right. So broadening things so that different ways of knowing can be included in the classroom, I, I think, is really important.
right? Creating spaces where um, women are comfortable or people, not just women, people who are often oppressed in general, where people of color are comfortable in speaking up. Oftentimes in my classrooms, um, we don't have a very large African-American population here at the college, and oftentimes in my classroom, there might be one African-American student. That student rarely speaks up. So I intentionally create spaces, create assignments, ask questions that might intrigue that student, that might wake that student up, that might pull that student in, show that student that that student is a part of the classroom, right, or the workplace or whatever the environment is. And I think sometimes we forget that. So really feminism is not just about creating spaces where women can thrive, but where all people, particularly people who, are, who, are, who have experienced oppression can also thrive. Um, people who identify as um, LGBT, and I, and I use that term and I, and I hate using it because a person is not all of those things, but I'm acknowledging that people who might have one of those identifiers, even thinking about that, we don't, I think we ignore that. We talk about race a lot, we talk about gender, but we don't talk about ways in which sexual orientation can really um, impact a person's experience in an environment because for fear, one, of people knowing, for fear, you know, of, 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 of being sort of diminished in a way. So how do we create a space where people can thrive in that way as well? Not just in the classroom, but also in any workspace. Something simple as gender-neutral bathrooms, which is something that I think some of our students here at the college have fought for, and I think we now have gender-neutral bathrooms in the U building. What does that mean? A person who is transgender, well, maybe that person is not comfortable going into a, a male bathroom or a female bathroom, so do we just have a bathroom that just says bathroom? Is that difficult? No, but it makes their experience at the college a little bit easier because they don't have to sort of deal with... Um, some of these things that become problematic. And I know that's a complex issue. I urge you all to do a bit of research on that issue because it's a very important thing uh, for us to think about. Another sector of our population that we need to include in our discussion. Sorry, that was a long... <laughs> yes. I actually have a question regarding, like, a woman's right to express her sexual freedom, like we see in the media, like girls that may have more sexual experience with guys will be viewed as sluts. But when a man... Or the other way around. Yeah, the man yeah. is like, oh, you go, boy, you go. Like, <laughs> how, do you, how do you feel about that double standard that a woman doesn't have the right to perhaps be more sexually open. I'm not saying it's right. Personally, I wouldn't like my girls like having one night stands, <laughs> but I wouldn't want my boys to do that either. I hear you as a, like, being with two girls and stuff. I'm like, either you take one or you get none, you know? I don't want them to be like that. I want them to be in a serious relationship, but I don't think there should be that double standard. If someone does choose to be more like that, maybe relationships aren't for them, but they still want to go and do that. How do you feel about that double standard of a girl being judged by that, but a man not being judged at all, but mm -hmm. actually being praised for that. And not actually just being judged by men. The women are actually judged by other women as yeah. well. Right? Um, I think that's a huge problem. And thank you for asking the, the big questions. Um, my perspective on that is very simple. Um, we, and I've had this conversation with my husband. Again, I'm married. I have a husband. I have boys. And we talk about that. And we talk about what are... What are the things that you're okay with the boys doing but not okay with our you know, daughter doing these, these sorts of questions? I'm not directly related to that yet. We have some years to go. But um, I think the question always for me that comes to my mind is if we're praising males for this sort of sexual prowess or, you know, this kind of conquering, which is really in many ways what it becomes in conversations, if we're praising males in order for them, well, it, well if we're, 
diminishing females who are choosing to be sexually free, there are also males who are participating with them. So it's not a, in order for, 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 for men to raise their numbers, what was the, who was the um, basketball player who had some outrageous number of 100,000? No, not Matthew Johnson. Anyway, one of the bas- basketball players, it was like some 100,000 women or 10,000 women, something ridiculous. Will Tremble. In order to get to that number, he's part of that too. And, and I don't understand. No, 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 I get it. No, I get what you're saying. But my, my point about that is, in order for one to be successful, right, in order for the man to be successful, women have to participate. So if women stop participating, men can't be successful. Do you follow that? So it doesn't make sense to me to look down at women in this particular case. Beyond that, I don't really have an opinion about it. I think people should do... I think people should stay out of their business. <laughs> and I don't know why I care. I really don't. I don't know why anyone cares what people are doing in that, in that world. But now that's a different issue. Now you're talking about a different issue. <laughs> yeah. No, I just think that that's not any of our business, quite frankly. But they're always double standards. Other questions? Yes, sir. I'm coming. When I was first uh, introduced to the term feminism, I had no clue what it was. But because it came with like a set of images and all that stuff, I thought it was like something where it included violence, something that women obviously would not want. And pretty much, in my opinion, what you see on the internet, what you see in the media, today's uh, I forgot the term. Uh, well. Pretty much what's seen today is affecting everyone's mindset, especially the children. When the children are exposed to all this uh, stereotype, there, there we go. When children are exposed to the stereotype, the seed is planted. And as they're growing, that seed is going to constantly grow. And once it's planted, it's going to be tough plugging it out. Mm-hmm. So today's uh, stereotype is pretty much just infecting everyone, mm-hmm. slowly but surely. And by stopping that stereotype, we can prevent this from happening. And I'll, you, you mentioned this uh, before, by introducing feminism at an early age, we can plant a proper seed and have it blossom once they grow, so this way we can have equality. Mm-hmm. And pretty much people's backgrounds, such as their uh, religion or traditions of well, who has what role or who believes in what, is really affected them a lot. Mm-hmm. Okay. Oh, and, uh, one I, more thing. I'm just not sure if it's a question or not. That's all. <laughs> no, just, just it. Uh, I actually did a little research on the whole uh, one-night stand thing. <laughs> Back in the genes, like, animals actually show this. It, it, it's a whole survival or reproductive thing. So it, it's actually in our genes. That's why it happens. It's not, oh, uh, people are this or that. No, it's in our genes. We want to experience something new with different people, just like animals. They do it for survival. They do it for reproduction. We do it while we're humans for the pleasure. That's an interesting conversation, but I actually think it's out of the scope of feminism. But you may want to look up the concept that um, uh, monogamy is not natural. There's a lot of work actually being done in the academic world about the unnatural nature of monogamy. So the idea of one relationship for your lifetime 
is really, um, at least from the perspective of, of folks who are looking at this um, historically, you know, throughout our human history, um, is really not a natural thing. So you may want to look more on that. Other questions? Yes, sir. Kind of going off what you were talking about earlier, what's your opinion on sex workers? Um, very important, 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 important issue. Um, in my work on reproductive rights, part of that work also includes um, really looking at that, looking at sex work. Um, so there are a couple things with sex work. We think about it in general. We think about it as sex, first of all, and, and really it's work. So if we can, one, get our minds off of it like a date or, or the issue that she's talking about, somebody choosing to have multiple relationships, that's a separate issue. Sex work in general, we're talking about women and men, but in particular when we're talking about women who are doing work out of a, a, a dire necessity, right? Now, you can argue whatever you want. Oh, some women choose, some people. I, I don't believe that anybody chooses that, just wake up in the morning and say, this is the career path I want to take, right? Um, so first of all, we have to think about it within a context of I have no other options. Here's what I'm going to do to make ends meet, or I've been sold into these conditions as a child, right? So my opinion about sex work is that, and the work that I did in reproductive rights, is that part of the way that we thought about it, we are respecting the people, particularly women, but there's also lots of men in, in these areas, respecting the women, not judging them, right? Trying to understand the conditions of their lives trying to help them move through their lives and trying to help them whatever decisions are best, to make whatever decisions are best for them. So part of that work might have included um, what we call harm reduction. This also happens in the, in the world of, of substance abuse and, and drug addicts, the idea that we don't want people to be heroin addicts, but we also don't want people to get diseases, so we pass out clean needles. That's called harm reduction, and that happens actually all over the world. Um, but in the world of sex work, it's the same thing. So we don't want these women or men to be out there, but we also don't want them um, getting diseases, pregnancies, all these sorts of things. So there are services in, in the work that I did where we provided assistance in those areas. For some people, that's problematic because they think, well, then that's supporting it. It's not really supporting it, but it's respecting the individual and trying to make them as safe as possible, possible but also trying to educate them and help move them out of whatever the conditions are of their lives. So that's the way I think about sex work. I don't have a judgment either way because I clearly understand it's not about a career path, <laughs> that it's really about conditions that sometimes that's what it is, right? I've got to feed my kids or whatever the, the, the issue may be. The Thank you for raising that because that's a really important issue. Yeah. And the interesting is you said, you said it before. In order for this to happen, you need men to be a part of And most, and this is not to say that, that women aren't the um, – well, the only ones who are paying for this work. Largely, it's men. And largely, it's Western men. And by Western men, I mean United States, Europe, th th this kind of thing, that are paying into and sort of, um, I don't know if I'd say causing it, but creating, you know, this, this sort of big, it's huge business. Can, it's very can, you can you define sex work? I think most of us can infer what you mean. In our, most, many of us are aware of what sex work means. But just to say what it is, I don't think we have. Um, oftentimes we, we talk about it as prostitution, but I, think, I don't even think that's sufficient enough to, to try to understand it. But it's um, work, literally work, but it's not always – well, here's the other thing. I use the example of a woman making a decision because she needs to buy you know, milk or whatever, food for her kids. But there are many people who aren't getting paid. 
<laughs> so they're still doing a job, right? They're providing a service to, to people who want it, but they're not getting paid. So technically, in some ways, it's slavery as well, which is a slightly separate issue, but I think that's all a part of it as well because we're not always clear what's going on. We're not always clear who's getting paid, and in particularly, particularly in situations where there is a mediator, so there is the, the, the sex worker, the, work, the person who is performing whatever the sexual things are that are being asked for, then there's that middle person, which we call the pimp, and then there's the person who's paying it. So particularly in those situations, even if she is getting paid, half her money is getting um, taken by the man who's sort of running the ring. So, I mean, it's complicated to even try to, to even think about it as work, right? In some cases, it is, in fact, slavery. Even if you are getting a penance from the pimp, that's still slavery, too. You perform the work. I mean, I'm not trying to belittle the situation, but that's the reality. So it really goes back to, I think, in many ways, what uh, Margaret Fuller talks about, the idea that women don't even get paid for their wages, even in this kind of black market field, women aren't getting paid their wages for their work that's being performed in, in this kind of bizarre um, sort of way. I don't know if that helps, Troy. Other questions? All right. Well, I thank you all for coming out, for participating. Um, we have one more lecture in the series that's uh, April 24th. That's going to actually be in B119. Um, Kevin Navratil, political uh, science professor, is going to be talking about what democracy is, is it working, how do we measure it, and trying to understand democracy from a um, kind of a political science perspective. So please and come out and join us. And if you're free tomorrow at 1 p.m. Um, as part of Women's History Month, we're going to have readings from the Vagina Monologues right here, which will be fun and entertaining so and meaningful. So please come if you can. How about a round of applause? For Thank you all. Good question. Thank you for participating. Thanks for listening to this Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu slash library.